three, two, one. Welcome to Kentucky Caliber. This week, I'm your host, Jason Belcher. With us is our guest who's been on the show a few times before, Mr. Jonathan Gay, who is an Army veteran and attorney. And this week, we're going to be talking about the war in Ukraine. And so, welcome. Good morning. How are you, Jason? I'm doing great. Uh, Glad to have you back. We haven't talked about Ukraine in a little while, and a lot has happened in that uh, area of operations. Boy, you're not kidding. It's It's been an eventful six months, I believe. It's the six-month anniversary today. Yeah, right right at that. And I think this week also is uh, a couple of national holidays in Ukraine itself. Uh, Flag Day and I think their National Independence Day is coming up maybe even today. I, I should have known that before I started this, but I think it's it may be today or, or tomorrow. I think it is today. And, and so far they seem to have weathered it. There was a lot of fear, but the, the, uh, the, the day is still, I guess, fairly young in Ukraine. Where they're about eight hours ahead of us. I, I think, think they're, I think they're plus eight or plus nine from Eastern Standard Time. So it's only in the uh, early uh, afternoon or evening over there. I know I'd, the Ukrainian intelligence had, had posted rumors that Russia was going to have some kind of show trial in Mariupol just to, to try to get attention away from um, Ukrainian independence. Of course, I, I haven't seen any evidence that that's actually happened yet. Have you? No, I haven't. Okay. Um, so big picture, I mean, what's your take on, on what we've seen in the, in the last couple of months as far as the, um, the war itself and, and what's going on? So the war began, of course, with Russia attempting to overwhelm Ukraine and to take Kiev. They, they actually um, made it into the outskirts of Kiev, took a couple of key airports, um, but began a massive troop convoy deep into the country. Uh, but they were ultimately beaten back, and so they pull back now, and they now occupy a much, much smaller footprint than the one they uh, they intended and the one that they initially did in the early days of the invasion. They're primarily in the south and primarily in the in the east. Uh, it seems that that Russia's making some very minor, just very difficult progress in the east um and they're making no progress in the south in fact in the south it looks like they're they're on the verge of um some some defeats in the south so that that's what i'm watching over the next few weeks but but right now that i guess for the for the russians what they can point to is that they've managed to blockade the coastline of ukraine for the most part and so ukraine cannot ship their grain cannot ship their the products they manufacture and also russia is able to threaten many of ukraine's cities still through rocket fire and through even conventional artillery in the in the east cities like kharkiv so yeah I, um, looking at the map i mean there's different estimates but i i think we're somewhere around 15 to 20 percent of the uh, territory of Ukraine is now occupied by Russian forces. And that's, like you said, almost all in the far eastern, southeastern portion of the country. Um, If you looked at it, it would be right down there in the corner. Uh, And that's, of course, you know, down there in the the areas where it borders um, along those points in Russia where where military access is easier. So 
that means the Russian supply lines are shorter out there, and so they've been more effective in areas where that is the case. Um, I haven't seen any indications that the um, political objectives from a big picture standpoint have changed, even though the, the situation on the ground is nowhere near what the initial uh, Russian uh, planners expected. Have you? No, you know, that's an interesting question. Russia is very opaque in its goals. I think its initial goals were to obviously conquer the the, the majority of the country, to, to take its capital city, to force either force Zelensky into exile or even capture Zelensky. Um, that, that seems to be impossible now, but Russia has not stated a mission change. Russia seems to be moving the goalpost uh, as they go to suit their needs. I'm, I'm reminded of a quote that Alexander Solzhenitsyn apparently commonly referenced, and he said, they, they know, we know they are lying, but they keep lying to us, and we keep pretending to believe them. You know, that's the way the Russian government operates. They are very duplicitous, and they don't seem to be uh, interested in, in conventional uh, niceties when it comes to letting people know what their objectives are to being candid with the Russian people, uh, any of that. I would agree with that. And one thing I wanted to mention uh, when it comes to territory is, as you know, we found out in Afghanistan and Iraq, um, taking territory and holding onto it are two very different things. And so while it's certainly true that Russia has managed to take territory in the east and south uh, southeastern portions of Ukraine, whether or not they can keep it is a different story and you mentioned um, Ukraine's forces they in some places I know they've already attempted and mounted um, limited counterattacks or even um, movements against the logistics uh, the rear areas of Russian forces which has caused them a lot of problems and so whether Ukrainian forces can can even retake some places that Russians uh, forces have already captured I think is certainly possible uh, in the near future yeah, that, that's the one thing that, that remains to be seen is to what extent can Ukraine go on the offense and take territories. Russia, uh, Ukraine seems to be very good at this strategy that's been uh, referred to as corrosion. They are slowly corroding the Russian military. They're hollowing it out. The question is, um, it's, it's, it becomes a question of time. Can Russia hold on long enough to uh, either deplete Ukraine's manpower or force Western governments to stop supporting Ukraine? Uh, can, can Ukraine hold on long enough to force Russia to come to terms with its economic situation? And I think those are the two big questions that we don't know the answers to. And the third, I would argue, is we, I don't think we really know I mean, no kidding, no. I don't think we know what the pain threshold is for for the Russian people or even their government when it comes to losses of equipment and personnel in Ukraine itself. You know, the estimates are all over the place as to what Ukraine or what the Russian military has actually lost. But I, I think it's probably a substantial amount of both material and personnel. But what is their pain threshold? Like, where is the point where they say, okay, that's enough. We can't take any more losses. We're going to call it a day. Um, I don't know what that number is. And I, I don't either. And of course, I would say that for Putin, there's there's no choice but to no, double down. He can't possibly um, accept the defeat. Now he may be able to uh, to characterize um, sort of a draw as a as a victory. 
but I think that he cannot suffer a defeat. Um, I think that the, the, the maybe the fourth question is, if they start hitting that pain point, do we see full mobilization? And if so, what does that bring to the table for the Russians? I don't, I don't think that's necessarily the... Um, a ticket for Russia. I don't think that's the get out of jail free card, um, but that does offer them many more resources that they could potentially bring to bear on this situation. So will they fully mobilize? And, and to me, that's one of the most interesting things about their, their political goals. When you, when you evaluate from a strategic standpoint, what the regime is trying to accomplish, what the logic of their position is versus their actual actions. So if you if you go if you take their claims about Ukraine at face value, which I don't, of course, I don't think you do either. But if you did, just hypothetically, if we took their claims at face value, then the logic of their position is a, a full mobilization should be something that the, the people are behind and want to do, so we can accomplish this objective that's vital to national interest. But they're not doing it, and they're taking great pains to avoid that. So that's just one of those you know interesting contradictions between what the regime's painting of the reality is in Ukraine versus what it really is. Yeah, that, that's an excellent point. I, th- I think that Russia thought that this was going to be a cakewalk, and they found out it's not a cakewalk, and now they're they're stuck, and they're, they're trying to find some way to establish victory. They're, they're praying that the West will pull their support for Ukraine. That doesn't seem to be happening. We've got, um, we're in 2022. So by my math, Joe Biden is going to be president of the United States for, um, at, at least another, um, what is that? 20, 24 months, not, yep. not quite 24 months. No, I mean, yes, 24 months because we've got 24 months before the election. So exactly. Joe Biden is going to be president of the United States for at least two more years. Can Russia, continue to muddle through with with president biden continuing to provide the the kind of military aid that he is i don't see that aid i don't see that that there's any weakening of the ukrainian support in in the united states political system um you know there's been some hope that maybe president trump would be reelected president trump and would then somehow force some kind of accommodation or pull aid from Ukraine. I don't think that's a given. Uh, So, you know, it it remains to be seen. What is Russia's strategy? What does Russia consider a win here? And meanwhile, I think in Europe, attitudes are hardening against Russia. And most specifically, I cite the applications of Sweden and and Finland to join NATO, which looks ever, we're getting close. We're not there yet, but we're pretty close. I mean, the Senate approved it. Um, so I, I think we finally got Turkey to agree to whatever their pound of flesh was uh, to drop their objection. And uh, so I, of those two, I would argue Finland is the more important of the two because it shares such a long border with Russia itself. And, of course, the history um, in the Second World War when Finland fought a, a pretty bloody, although brief, struggle against uh, Soviet forces, which was much harder than they expected it to be. I think they expected Finland to capitulate pretty quickly and for that to be an easy conflict, and it was anything but. Um, so when they're full NATO members, that changes the game, I think. That, that does, and it also speaks to the changing political calculus. And Finland has, um, has a history over the past nearly 70 years to, to be very neutral, the state of neutrality and the fact that they're now coming off the fence and, and siding openly with the West, I think, speaks to the weakening of the Russian position and also to the strengthening of 
of NATO's position. Yeah, just from geography. I mean, if you look at the 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 border, the border with Poland uh, as it as it goes through what used to be the Soviet Union. I mean, adding Finland into the mix, there almost doubles the land border that a NATO country would have with Russia itself. I mean, that's pretty significant. It it is, and it also. You know, in terms of the future, Russia has invested heavily in the Arctic and in an attempt to stake its claim to the resources that the Arctic are going to is going to yield as climate change continues and global warming continues. Um, having Finland in the game for NATO gives NATO a lot of um uh, capabilities in the Arctic region that they did not have previously. And we have to remember, of course, uh, it's also very personal for Mr. Putin because the, the nearest Finnish border is only a few miles from St. Petersburg, which is, you know, where he used to be mayor. That's his home turf. So, I mean, I think that's also a very personal thing to him as well. You, you know, you remind me, there's a new biography out on Vladimir Putin by Philip Short. Oh, I haven't heard of that. I purchased it, but I haven't had an opportunity to delve into it. Of course, I've, as I've shared with you, with, with four little ones, yeah. the only way I'm able to uh, to digest books these days is via Audible. So I, I've got the auto, audio version. I'm looking forward to that. He, he did a biography on Pol Pot previously, and that he, he's done, I believe, a biography on Mao in the past. So very, very accomplished biographer. Um, and I was—I look forward to it. I actually have to check that out. I, I would love to add that to my uh, reading list. And, and like you, you got to—you got to find time for it where you can. Um, that's actually audio is actually a very efficient way to do it because when you're driving somewhere, you know, you can plug that in, and it, it makes a great way to to pass the trip. Yeah, I, I agree. Um, one of the more interesting recent developments on the ground in Ukraine, and I wanted this is one of the things I wanted to get to. Um, are you familiar with the uh, the situation in Zaporizhia, which is the uh, nuclear power plant down there in the south? I, I am, and, and I'm a little bit perplexed by that. I, I, I'm wondering, you know, there's there's a lot of, of discussion that Russia may attempt to, um, to sabotage that and create some sort of nuclear cloud. I think the more likely scenario is that Russia simply takes that off the Ukrainian grid and converts that into Russian power. I don't think there's, uh, I don't see where there's a lot of victory for Putin to create a, uh, a Chernobyl in the middle of Ukraine. I think it's more likely that he creates um, another, that he simply steals the power from Ukraine and, and converts it to uh to Russian power, which allows him to claim a, a small tactical victory, and uh, so that's 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 my best guess. But you know, the problem is you you have Ukrainians and Russians fighting over this power plant. What happens if one side or the other either miscalculates? And and, and I think another question, you know, I, I doubt if there are very well established protocols for Russia giving up that plant. I would think that Russia is determined to hold on to that, and if Ukraine manages to um, to, to dislodge them from it, I, I don't necessarily think that Vladimir Putin is going to send orders, okay, back out peacefully. So I think that that leaves a lot up to those men and, and women on the ground, uh, those Russian men and women on the ground, assuming that Ukraine manages to... to um, retake that plant. And so for folks who don't know who are listening and may wonder, Zaporizhia is um, a very large, it's bigger than Chernobyl. It's a large nuclear power plant that supplies a lot of uh, electrical power, not, not only to Ukraine, I believe some of that also goes beyond Ukraine's border. 
And what Russia has done recently is they took the plant and they've set up a, a military headquarters there. So think about the tactical advantage that gives them. You know, I can launch attacks from Zaporizhia, but I know the enemy won't dare reply because you'll destroy the plant and create a nuclear disaster. Um, so they're sort of using it uh, as a base of operations, and they know the Ukrainians will be reluctant to mount a, a direct counterattack against it. And indeed, so far, that has been the case. Uh, Ukrainian forces, uh, which have the capability, certainly, with artillery to target the entire area, have not done so. And I believe that's the reason why, uh, that they don't want to destroy it either. Yeah, and you know, you talked about artillery. The, um, the, the One of the major changes that we've seen in Ukraine since you and I did this the last time was the introduction of HIMARS, uh, the multiple launch rocket systems that United States provided them those, at least in in the media, seem to be somewhat of a game changer. You know, prior to that, Russia was able to mass its artillery and and really beat back Ukraine. Then Ukraine gets the HIMARS, and they start targeting uh, weapons hubs deep in the enemy rear, and those seem to be having a... uh, a pretty significant effect on Russia's ability to mount offensives. Yeah, it's, I'm glad you brought that up. There, there was a Russian general one time who said that uh, the way he ar- aimed his artillery fire was by using a corncob pipe. He just hold it up and see how far the stem looked uh, in front of the in front of the artillery, and that was the basis for the uh, the aiming point. So not not very accurate uh, in that standpoint. Whereas the HIMAR system is precisely the opposite. It is a hyper accurate, very precise tool which allows you to direct artillery fire. Uh, to a set of direct coordinates. And so when Ukraine lost the uh, air supremacy, which they, they don't have over their own airspace now, they don't have the ability to conduct precise airstrikes. But HIMARS gives them the same capability, except they can do it from the ground. So it, it, it is a game changer, and it has enabled them to very accurately target Russian supply depots, supply lines, and other you know critical nodes of infrastructure for the Russian military. And of recent, that has played a, a large role, I think, in, in slowing down, uh, in some cases, completely halting the progress of Russian ground forces. You still there? Yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm digesting you. You're very well spoken. Oh, um, sorry. You, you no, know, you're fine. You know, an, an additional question that I, that, that I wonder about, get your take on this, is to, to what extent does this either divert from or play into America's Cold War with China. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. The Chinese so far have been at least publicly backing Russia in terms of uh, in, diplo- in diplomatic terms. They haven't sent any, any uh, arms or materiel to support Russia, and I don't think they will either. Um, but they've been supporting them diplomatically. So I think they've been very interested to watch and see how this plays out because it tells them something about how the world might respond to a Chinese invasion of Taiwan, for example. Um, and I think they're also interested to learn any lessons they can at Russia's expense uh, from, 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 from urban co- combat in, in a high-technology environment, um, which Ukraine has done a good job of leveraging because I think the, the Taiwanese would, would do the same. So I think China really – I think China wants this fight to keep going so they can learn as much from it as they can, honestly. Yeah, that, that's that's an interesting point. I think that uh, China does surprisingly seem to have uh, told the Russians, you're on your own here, uh, we'll help you diplomatically, like you said, but in terms of material and, and 
even manpower they're certainly not not willing to do that as of yet and no signs they will yeah i, I would not expect to see that um i would you know the recent it, it's a separate topic we could have a, a separate show on the, the china situation um part of the, the blowback from pelosi was her personally you know she's been a very outspoken critic of china for some time, so some of the uh, the saber rattling from Beijing was not just directed towards the Speaker of the House, but towards her as an individual because of her past stances. I think. Yeah, you know, Pelosi Pelosi did something that I think was admirable, and, and that is stand up to the Chinese. I think that the uh, the significance of her message may be somewhat lessened by just she, she's just not as nimble a spokesperson as maybe she was 10 years ago, 20 years ago. And so the, uh, the, the impact of that maybe on the American people has, um, has been somewhat muted, but I think uh, the, the message was certainly received in Taiwan and China. And, and to get us back to, uh, to Ukraine, there was a, another angle I wanted to come at for this just briefly. Um, there was an interesting article by a Ukrainian expat in the New York Times last week, and the author, who is from the Donbass region, um, mentioned that that many of his friends and family members had communicated to him that they'd seen Russian soldiers, you know, riding around on bicycles and, and marveling at the technology that Ukrainian homes had, and so they were they were sort of finding out that Ukraine was not what they were told it was, um, and and in his view, he argued that they would communicate that back to their their family and friends in Russia, and that would help pull the curtain back from the, um, the falsehoods that are coming out of the Kremlin. Um, I, I kind of feel like that he, I kind of feel like he's wrong about that. And I'll tell you why. Have you ever heard of uh, a, a guy by the name of Arkady Babchenko? I have not. He wrote a book called One Soldier's War. And it was about his experience in Chechnya when he was a, a soldier. In fact, I think he was on active duty uh, in the Russian military during the same years uh, I was on active duty here in the United States, but he, he served in Chechnya anyway. The, the point he made was many soldiers that he saw in his battalion would would go to Chechnya and specifically uh, Grozny just to loot and steal as much as they could. Then they'd apply for a discharge, go home, spend all their money, then come then apply for you know reenlistment, go back, steal some more, and they just keep doing that as much as they could. Wow. Yeah, you know, I think there's some of that. And I also think we have to look at where the soldiers are coming from. It seems that the, the reporting I've seen shows that the majority of the soldiers are coming from Russia's provinces. Um, the, these are, are areas that are um, the, the stands, if you will, of Russia. And they tend to be not necessarily the heart and center of Russian politics. So I don't, I don't know. Um, first of all, these are very impoverished areas that many of these soldiers are coming from and second of all to the extent that they that they have a political voice their voice is probably marginal within russia yeah and no, i would agree with that I, I was just saying if if the author of that uh, piece in the times thinks that them finding out ukraine is wealthier is going to help him i think he's got it backwards i think it's going to actually hurt them because now they're going to see that as a, a better a better target so hey, they're going to tell their buddies yeah. oh yeah you want to you definitely want to deploy here there's there's lots of loot to be taken so sign up uh, and come and get some yeah, you know, we, we had thought originally that, that Russia might run into some manpower issues, and, and I think they, they have 
had those on the margins, but I, I don't think they've had those to the extent that, that many people hoped. And, and and you're exactly right on the looting. I mean, the, the, the looting out, out of Kiev was just incredible. They were stealing washing machines. They were stealing phones. You know, U- Ukrainian uh, citizens would, would keep their phones on and would not cancel the subscription, and they were they were noticing their phones being used in Belarus and, and various places around Russia. Their, their photos photos were being uploaded onto their system, and, and it's just it, it, it's truly amazing what the, the looting that the Russian soldiers engaged in. Yeah, and, and to get back to Zaporizhia just for a minute, um, I was thinking. Um, you know, right now it's August, so it's summertime and everything's weather-wise, you know, you don't, you don't, you can go outside or, or you don't need, uh, you can get by without electrical power. But when winter comes, who controls the power supply becomes a very different, uh, a di- very different thing. And that's a much bigger leverage point. Uh, and, and I think this conflict will almost certainly continue uh, into the fall and winter. And so when cold weather sets in, you know, the control of those power nodes, I think it's going to become even more significant. It will, and the, you know the other power issue that, that or energy issue that bears watching is there's a lot of thinking that Russia may turn off the gas to Germany um, this this winter, and the German government has been scrambling to try to avert a crisis there. I, I don't know that it's going to pressure Germany into doing what what Russia wants, at least directly. But I think that the more economic chaos Russia manages to create in the West, the, uh, the, the, the more that there's a chance of some fringe government coming into power or some fringe party gaining power and forcing a rollback of some of this military aid. Yeah, and for folks who were listening and maybe wondering about that, you know, the, the German economy is a, is a very industrialized economy, and many of those industrial processes are very uh, power-intensive. They require a lot of power. And so this is something that they've been able in the past to get cheaply from Russian gas. And so that's, the, that's why this is such a, a significant issue. What I've seen in the past couple of months is uh, almost the same type of uh, behavior from both sides. The German government wants to get rid of, wants to stop using Russian gas, but they can't. Russia wants to stop sending gas to Germany, but they can't either um, because the, the economic exchange is just too valuable for both of them. So I think so far they both want to quit it, but that neither one of them can do it, uh, at least not yet. Yeah, that that's a fascinating point. And, and I don't know, to, to but, but that that's not an un, unparalleled um, development I, I don't know of, of any situation where you you would have two powers trading with one another meanwhile Germany is sending artillery is sending heavy weapons is doing everything it can to um, ultimately kill Russian soldiers in Ukraine so it's it's just a fascinating uh, process that's that's playing out I think that I think it will be fair to characterize that as one example of the insanity of war yeah. Uh, that's, a, that's a great point. Yeah, it really is. Um, so, yeah, as we look forward, um, you know, this is obviously the biggest um, conventional conflict that Europe has seen since the end of World War II. The true extent of the devastation is unknown and is almost certainly more than what we think it is uh, in terms of loss of life and, and destruction of cities. And I just I see that continuing, unfortunately, uh, for the next several months, if not m- for much further than that. And I just I don't really see any potential right now 
for either side or both sides to be able to come to even a ceasefire, much less uh, have any kind of meaningful peace talks. Do you? I, I agree with that. I don't think that we've seen that we're anywhere close to seeing the, uh, the, the light at the end of the tunnel. You know, I've, I've been reading some on the American Revolution this summer, and it, it took quite a few years before the British government decided that, that they'd had enough in, in America. You know, they, they changed the goals as well. If you read history, they initially wanted to reconquer all of the American colonies, and then they, they realized that was probably not possible, so they, they focused solely on the South. Um, you know, and, and, and eventually, thanks to some missteps on the part of the British, America, and, and a lot of luck, and the intervention of the French, George Washington was able to to defeat a large army at Yorktown and, and force surrender of um, enough British soldiers that the British government threw in the town. Uh, you know, we, we see we will not see the West come in the way the French came to the aid of the Americans. Uh, we will not see um, we, we may not see those same kind of, of victories that that the American military had as a result of that. So I think that we're probably in a, a long attritional war. I don't know to what extent the sanctions are going to impact Russia. I've seen mixed reports on that. So I think that's that's an area that also bears watching. Will those, those sanctions... Russia has certainly managed to fend off the worst of those sanctions by, by the increased price of, of oil and gas. But we, we shouldn't forget that they're not able to get many of the parts necessary for an industrial economy. You know, everything from software licenses to uh, jet engine parts have been uh, completely banned from from being sent from the West to Russia. So to what impact that will have on their economy remains to be seen. And you mentioned that's a good good example there from the Revolutionary War about when the British government decided they'd had enough. So we, we asked that question earlier about Russia, but we have to ask the same question about Ukraine. What is their pain threshold? Uh, and, and how much are they willing to take? Because unlike Russia, they don't have the option to, to give up and just withdraw. Um, that's, that, that's, a, that's an excellent point. And, and you know, and I would say to the, uh, the, the 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 conduct of the Russian soldiers in Mariupol and, and other places uh, in in the outskirts of Kiev when they when they initially conquered has probably educated Ukrainians that they can they can expect no mercy if they surrender. You know. Russia is going to turn their communities into a pretty desolate landscape and, and rape and kill many thousands in the process. So I don't think there's any incentive right now for Ukraine to um, to, to, sur- to surrender. I agree with that, and I would say um, the, the effects of that will be lasting. So what you're seeing today are, are being planted the seeds of, of cultural hatred and bitterness that will probably uh, endure for many generations, uh, far beyond our lifetimes and our children's lifetimes. I would expect that, you know, 50, 100 years from now, uh, Ukrainian scholars or chroniclers will, will tell stories about the, the atrocities committed against them in this war, and that will uh, inform the thinking of an entire generation of Ukrainians in, in the future for the next probably 100 years, if not more. That's a great point. I think it's it's Samuel Huntington may not have been a prophet but you know his uh, his ideas to the extent that that they were valid at the time 
maybe even more valid after the end of this war. And you know, you can look again, going back to the American example. The Americans were happy to be the American colonists were happy to be contributors and a part of the British Empire for many, many generations. And I know we don't have the same parallel here with Russia and Ukraine, but I think Russia sort of felt that there was a lot of fondness for Russia prior to them going in. And, and to the extent that that may have been true, this has certainly hardened feelings and pushed people away from Russia and Ukraine. And, for, and just so for folks who may not have heard the uh, the name before, Samuel Huntington was a, a scholar, and he wrote a book, a very influential book called Clash of Civilizations, and he drew a map, a series of maps. Uh, he mapped up the world, and he called he he created what he called potential fault lines, where different civilizations are are right next to each other. And so, just much like an earthquake fault line, these are areas he identified for potential conflicts to erupt. And he one of the fault lines that he drew went right through. Uh, Ukraine and Russia, and so that's what you meant when you said he, he may not have been a prophet, but he certainly his his theory certainly did uh, predict this this very uh, scenario that we're seeing play out. In that he predicted that the the Ukrainian and the Russian civilizations were a place where the likelihood of future conflict was very high. You know, and, and from from what I've read, the reporting before. Um uh, Alexander Dugan's daughter was was uh, assassinated. D- Dugina, uh, she, one of the last talks she gave was a reference to Samuel Huntington's theories. And you know, it's interesting. I, I had a chance. To, I've read some of his work before, and I know we've we've discussed it, and and we've had discussions with that of other friends who who actually live in Russia. Um, but you know, the, the the fourth political theory, and it's it's sort of a it's often presented as a, um, a model or a framework of thought where um, the goal is for Russia to control a, 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 an empire from Vladivostok all the way to Lisbon, which is pretty much the entire Eurasian continent. And this sort of provides the underlying you know, theory behind why that should be successful. Um, have you read the fourth? I, I've, looked, I've read parts of it. I haven't read all of it. But have you actually looked at his book, The Fourth Political Theory? I have not in a while. I've, I've tried reading some of it and, and just uh, found it so fantastical that it didn't really go much further. For sure, in a nutshell, when he called, when he talks about the fourth political theory, so he's he's saying that the earlier three, which he defines as liberalism, fascism, and communism. Those are the earlier three from the 20th century, uh, the earlier political theories. His argument is that Russia sh- should create a fourth to, to replace all of those because all of those have failed. And Russia has a unique mission, uh, and Russian civilization has a unique mission to bring order to that Eurasian zone. And it can't be done using any of those other three political theories. They have to have a fourth one. Um, anyway, that, that's his writing. It, whether or not it, how, to what extent he actually influenced Putin or his advisors, I'm not sure. Um, I'm not sure which way the, the channel flows on that. I'm not sure if they were influenced by him or he was influenced by them. Uh, it could go both ways. Yeah, I, I, would, I would guess there's probably a lot of um, leaning on one another in this, in this mix. But the Russians seem to have this messianic complex about themselves, and I think it's rooted in the fact that they are a very strong power in a very... Uh, in, in a relatively weak community, so they, they see themselves historically as having brought some civilization to the stands and to Eastern Asia, and they view it as their mission now to, uh, to do the same thing in the West, not realizing that 
that the West are not not willing to accept that the West is much more economically advanced and culturally advanced than they are. Yes, and, and crucially, I think that that theory underscores Mr. Putin's own stance that he, he American observers tend to have the notion that he wants to bring back the Soviet Union. That's not true. What he wants to bring back is the Russian Empire, which predated the Soviet Union. So he wants to go back to the czars, uh, I think, not not the time of the Soviets, which are two distinct things in history. Yeah, I, w- I would agree. Um, going forward, I mean, so what do you think we, we can do or should do uh, from, from the perspective of the United States and our allies? I mean, what are our options uh, as we look into the near future about this, what to do about this, if anything? Great, great point. I think from the national level, I think we keep doing what we're doing. I don't think we have um, a clear option to escalate any more than we are. I think we just have to keep sending them weapon systems and, and see to what extent they can use those. Um, you know, I, I just don't see a, a role for, for greater involvement than that. Uh, on a personal level, what I've tried to do is I've tried to, to focus to the extent I can be an activist for Ukraine, I've tried to focus my energies on two areas. I've tried to help various nonprofits that are forming to provide aid to Ukraine. So I would I would advocate for anyone that's interested in that, please reach out to me. There are some organizations, particularly in southern Ohio, that are really great. We just went to a fundraiser, my wife and I did, and the kids this past weekend where they raised a substantial amount of money to send aid to Ukraine. Um, the, the other area that I try to do is I try to be involved in the web, and I, I don't know to what extent that's helping, but we certainly, I certainly try to be active in the Twitter sphere. Um, there, there's a handle for a site that we've just created, a, a Twitter handle called Putin's Victims, and so we're trying to launch Sarah Hurst, a, a journalist in the UK, and I are in a collaborative effort to try to document the men, women, and children killed by Russia in the 21st century. We've got a uh, a website, putinsvictims.co.uk, is a UK-based website, and so we're trying to uh, bring attention to those folks who continue to be killed by this brutal regime. So I would encourage, you know, not just from a national level, but individual activists to try to find a way to get involved and, and to help, because I believe that ultimately this is a cause that we should all be involved in. I think that that's amazing, and, and good on you for doing that, and I think it will matter, because when it comes to the issue of, of prosecuting uh, war crimes, the, the evidence that is gathered and uh, archived and um, otherwise organized by folks with legal training like yourselves could actually play a direct role in a future prosecution of those who perpetrated those crimes. Absolutely. And, and I think the more that we're able to shine a spotlight on this, the more it frees up our, our leaders to continue providing support. And there's bipartisan support. You know, Sarah McConnell has been in Kentucky, has been very pro-Ukraine. Uh, President Biden is, is, is very pro-Ukraine. And we've got to do all we can to to shape the, the public debate so that that support continues. I would agree, and I would agree that we continue to support uh, Ukraine in terms of material and supplies, with not with uh, any direct forces ourselves. Um, of course, the potential is always there for um, a, a Russian attack on Poland or Turkey. I, those are the two places I think are most likely candidates for some an, an escalation of this to go beyond, uh, to expand beyond just the Ukrainian theater. Uh, you know, Russia has already uh, carried out attacks very, very close to the Polish border. And I know they're cognizant of where that border is. 
but it just shows you that they have the capability to strike targets in that area. And so if there were to be an escalation point, I, probably of the two, Poland or Turkey, I would say Poland is number one uh, of the places yeah. where a Russian attack could, could uh, theoretically trigger a larger conflict between NATO and Russia. Yeah, I would agree with that, and I would I would see some logic in that. If Putin feels like he is, is not able to achieve his goals through through the military means, and that he's on the verge of losing, I could see Putin trying to enlarge the conflict in the hopes that he could force a settlement. You know, you bring in Poland, you bring in NATO. Um, there will be some some pretty strong saber rattling, but there's also the potential for the, the United States and the other great powers to force some kind of resolution, to negotiate a resolution with Russia that would allow them to have a more advantageous um, outcome than, than they could possibly get on the military, on the battlefield. So that that's something that I'm sort of watching is to see. And another thing I'm watching is to see if Ukraine can do anything to free up its uh, its coastline. Right now, it seems like Russia has done a, a pretty thorough job of bottling up their economy and, and boycotting, um, forcing a boycott of Ukrainian grain. You know, we've seen, though, in the past few weeks, Ukraine is starting to hit Kherson, it's starting to hit the Crimea. So can Ukraine start to hit Russia's sea power in a way that allows them to start to break out of that, that the blockade? Yeah, that's, that is one of the, that's a great point. And that's another one of those um, areas to watch that could change the entire dynamic of the conflict itself. So if Ukraine were able to do that, I think that would change the calculus of, uh, of the entire situation. And I wanted to mention briefly, um, when we're talking about what we should do, I know it, it may sound contradictory, but uh, I would say we could continue the supply of arms and materiel, but publicly, uh, through the organs of our national government, I think we should downplay their significance or just not talk much about it. I think we should just keep quiet about it because there's no need to try to impress on, on Russia just how, how vital those are because that just gives them an incentive to expand the conflict, which is what we don't want. Um, it may not work, I don't know, but I just I don't think that bragging about it is the way to go. Yeah, that's a, that's a great that's a great point. I mean, you, you know, we're, we're, we're sort of in this situation where we want to do all we can to support Ukraine uh, within limits. <laughs> and so how, how do you do all you can to support someone within limits? And, and what are those limits? And it's a, it's a very tough situation for, for the United States. It's even tougher for, for Russia to, uh, to, to strike the right calculus. But, you know, Russia has the benefit of not having to worry about uh, congressional elections. So Putin is, <laughs> is somewhat freed up to uh, to pursue his own strategy. Well, that's one of the benefits of having an, an autocracy. You don't have to worry quite as much about uh, popular opinion um, or, or the election process, as you mentioned. Although one of the interesting um, notes I read from a, a Russian writer was, uh, and, and this is a, it's too big of a topic for us to get into in this, in this discussion, but his point was the problem with Russian public opinion is that it simply doesn't exist. Um, there really isn't one. So that, that's one of the reasons why that, because uh, folks are just disengaged. They aren't really paying attention. They only pay attention to what happens within their own communities beyond national borders is not something that really interests them too much. And so that helps uh, the, the Putin regime say whatever they want uh, and not get any serious pushback because there's not any serious interest in it in the first place. Yeah, it's, it's like that quote that I tried to reference earlier. We, we know they're lying. They know they're lying. 
we know they know they're lying. They know we know that they know we are lying, and they are lying. And so yeah. Russia manages to do this, and, and they, they do it in such a way that they convince themselves that they actually have a voice. And, and it's it's like the old joke that Reagan used to tell. Uh, Reagan, would, there was a, a patriotic American who was engaged in banner with a patriotic Russian. He said, you know, in the United States, I can go in and I can go all the way to the White House, and I can go into the Oval Office, and I can slam my hand on Ronald Reagan's desk, and I can say, I think you're doing a horrible job, Ronald Reagan. And the, the Russian replied and said, you know, I can do the same thing. I can march up to Moscow. I can march into the Kremlin. I can go to Brezhnev's desk, and I can slam my hand on the desk, and I can say, I think Ronald Reagan is doing an awful job. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So they, they convince themselves that they that they have this this voice when they truly don't but um, well that's the old so anyway. that's the old joke about communism too though you know the people pretended to work and the government pretended to pay them and so everybody was happy yeah. <laughs> there's, there's such an odd dynamic yeah okay well it's been a great discussion i mean we're about the 45 minute mark and i know you're busy so you, you got to go on to other things today um i really appreciate you taking the time to talk about this you know the goal is to to try to provide an independent and informed voice for folks to listen to so that the, they can l- learn about the situation and uh, be make educated, informed decisions uh, as to uh, who they want to vote for, or, or just what they what they know about what's going on uh, in Ukraine itself, because it will affect us. It does affect us, uh, and that will continue to be the case uh, in the future. I think. Yeah, thanks. Thanks for having me on, Jason. Always good to talk about this with a fellow veteran. Yep. And congratulations on your new role. And uh, just again for those folks that might be interested, it's on Twitter at Putin's Victims. And it's on the web at putinsvictims.co.uk. And if anyone is interested in learning more about the projects that I'm engaged in, please reach out. I I will check that out, too. And I have a a colleague of mine who is Ukrainian, uh, Max Kovalov, who's from Ukraine. I'm going to mention that to him and see if he he is in contact with any folks there who might be able to provide any information of interest to you and and to that effort. Well, that would be great. Yeah, we're... And, and we have set it up in such a way that we don't have to get a lot of information, detail. We're just, we, we want to be respectful of people's time. So I would appreciate that. Sure. Okay. All right. Well, thank you very much. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Have a good day, Jason. All right, that was our good friend, Mr. Jonathan Gay, an Army veteran and attorney. Really appreciate his time, and thank everyone for listening. I hope you enjoyed the uh, the show. I thought it was we had a good conversation about the situation in Ukraine, and we'll continue to watch that as it goes forward in the future. And I hope everyone has a great day. Thank you, and take care.